Hello, welcome to episode 22 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Bryn Jackson. This week we sat down with Kenneth Bowles. He was a senior design manager at Twitter. He just left and went and got married and he's taking some time off right now. Before that, he was at Clear Left. He uh, co-authored Undercover User Experience Design with James Box. He wrote for the Pastry Box Project. He wrote for List Apart. I've been following him for years just based on his writing and he's a really talented guy. We were really excited to sit down and talk to him. Yeah, the call was over Skype. Uh, we caught up with him in London. So that was uh, a little bit different, but very fun. Thank you so much to everyone that's leaving us reviews on the iTunes store. It means so much to, to see the ratings come in. We're getting some great feedback, some critical feedback as well, which is always helpful. Um, if you are enjoying the show or if you just have thoughts for us, um, definitely hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. And of course, if you're feeling in a good mood, leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, the ratings there help us get in front of new people. Uh, for whatever reasons, uh, iTunes charts are sort of the de facto place for podcast reviews. So any rating you give there's us really helps. There's really nowhere else. Hmm? There's really nowhere else. Yeah, there's nowhere else. So It's um, unfortunate for people who listen on Android, but... Yeah. I, I would bet there's a computer you could use to do it too. Yeah, if you listen on Android and still want to review us, just open iTunes on your computer and find us in the it. iTunes store. Before we get into this episode, thank you once again so much to IconFinder.com. IconFinder, as you know, is the largest source of premium vector icons on the web. They have over 500,000 icons in their library today, and they're on pace to add 300,000 more icons by the end of the year. It's pretty insane. They have icons for every single project you could ever imagine. Uh, any, any and then some. And then some. You can't even imagine the projects for these icons. Yeah, they're just, and they're just there. They keep adding more and more. So as digital design continues to evolve, for example, the Apple Watch. If you need icons specifically for that, Icon Finders is going to help you find the perfect icon for your project. Uh, they have a service called Icon Finder Pro. It's just a few bucks a month. But if you sign up today, you can use the promo code Robot and you'll get 50% off your first month. It really is uh, the best way to get icons and save a lot of money in the process. Also, the cool thing about Icon Finder Pro is that 70% of the money that they earn through that goes straight back into the design community. They're paying the designers and artists who are creating these amazing icons. 70% of each sale 70. goes straight to the creator of the icons. That's awesome. It's amazing. They are so supportive of the design community. And if you need any icons for any reason, you should check them out and support them as well. They're at iconfinder.com and use the promo code ROBOT to get 50% off your first month of Icon Finder Pro. Thanks once again to Icon Finder. This episode, we get to thank a new sponsor, Code School. They're a website that teaches people how to code using entertaining content. Like these, they have these in-depth videos and everything. It's all built around like a sense of humor and really good content. Uh, they have courses like JavaScript, HTML, CSS, Ruby, Git, iOS, fairly easy things to get into that are really important for designers to know. They even have stuff like TryR and Chrome DevTools, really cool stuff. More than a million people around the world use CodeSchool to improve their development skills and learn by doing. I would say knowing how to code has been probably one of the biggest reasons I have my job today. You still think you know how to code? It's adorable. You should go use this. <laughs> you jerk. Okay, not program, but HTML and CSS, Git, all those kinds of things. They're so helpful, right? They are very useful. And one of the hardest things to do, which is really funny because it uses two of the simplest languages on earth, is making HTML emails. It's a pain. It's not, <laughs> it's not easy. easy. Everyone, every single like email client supports a different set of protocols. They don't all do... Um, you can't put style sheets in, in the head. You have to inline everything. Everything has to be tables. Like Gmail will break all your responsive stuff and it will strip out all your fonts unless you're using Helvetica. It's it's terrible. And Code School makes it easy. Code School <laughs> is teaching all the fine details so you don't have to learn by... It's accidentally sending crappy looking emails to a million people. I, I used to send a lot of HTML emails. I used to design a lot of HTML emails. It was a fight every single time. It is not an easy thing. I'm really glad they're doing this. They they gave us this really funny video um, that Justin Mezel apparently did a bunch of illustrations for because I saw a few of them pop up on Dribble. <laughs> like these great 80s style illustrations. So at least go check out the video. It's really neat. And if you if you're interested, which you kind of should be, go visit codeschool.com for more information and start playing courses now. And that video will be in the show notes. Yes, it will. Check it out. Thanks again to Code School. And with that, let's get into episode 22 with Kenneth Bowles. So, 
what are you working on these days? Yeah, well, you know, I don't really know at this stage. Um, it's only it's been three weeks uh, since I left Twitter, uh, so I'm just taking that time, just as downtime at the moment, seeing what's out there. Mostly just working on regaining a little bit of balance and objectivity and space from things. Just kind of get my head in, uh, you know, the right space to start thinking more intelligently about what I do next. Meeting folks for coffees, trying to sort of make those connections, seeing what's happening in, uh, you know, in London and 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 further afield, and then poking around doing like things like writing that I had kind of neglected uh, to an extent or just didn't have time for. Maybe yeah, plan some workshops, do a bit of public speaking, things like that. But yeah, I don't know. I don't have a kind of overarching project at this stage. I'm looking forward to finding what that's going to be. Being married is quite the project oh, in itself. <laughs> of course, yes. Um, yeah, so that happened um, within 72 hours of, of my departure of Twitter. I mean, they, you know, we, we obviously sort of planned the days to be quite close. So yeah, that was uh, a time of some significant change in my life um, <laughs> around that around that time. So um, yeah, it's great. You know, I'm very, uh, very happy to have made that move forward in my life. Yeah, so we're both very happy. Cool. Uh, what were you working on at Twitter? How did you get hooked up with them? Yeah, so I, I, I was working on a variety of stuff. So I was there uh, three years in total, uh, more or less. And right at the start, when I was hired, I was actually the first uh, design hire outside of the US. So there were teams in San Francisco. Obviously, there was uh, also a New York team at the time. And I think uh, one other, I think it may have been a, a Boston designer. I can't remember at, the, at that time. And so I was hired originally to work on TweetDeck. Uh, and TweetDeck, that team has always been in London. It was a London startup. And then post-acquisition, they decided to keep uh, that team there rather than ship everyone out uh, to San Francisco. So I was working on that. And I think Twitter had realized that there was a lot of potential in that product. Um, and it needed a bit of shaping, needed a bit of uh, you know direction. And so they wanted to invest in, in design there. And also because it was an acquisition, they wanted to help make the the user experience of that a bit more coherent with other Twitter properties so that, um, you know, you have that kind of cross-platform thing and it felt more Twittery and behaved more Twitter-like and so on. So obviously, um, you know, they brought me in uh, to try and tackle that. So I was working on that for a, you know, a good, a good while, probably the first year of my time there. I was able to convince them after a while that this was, you know, it was a big task and that we needed, um, uh, you know, more hands on deck, uh, more, more hands on tweet deck. So <laughs> you do have that one down. <laughs> <laughs> Pre-prepared that one, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we, we, we managed to hire there. Um, and then really from there, the team uh, grew. We had then an Android project come out to London, which was quite a significant one. Spent, you know, several months looking at that, um, working with various designers and then getting my hands dirty myself as well. Uh, and then finally, we hired someone uh, for that project as well. So by that stage, the team had started to grow. So in effect, I was kind of, I was heading up the the UK uh design studio if you like so my title i was a design manager uh, for uk uh, and at its peak uh, that was a team of six in london a little bit smaller now that i've left and actually one of the um the motion designers uh, from london has moved across uh, to san francisco so the team's a bit smaller again now you know that obviously comes with interesting challenges about how you how you scale a team outside of hq how you make sure that help everyone feel part of this connected global team how do you make sure you can have visibility on each other's work and so on? So I was kind of handling a lot of those more process-driven and more managerial aspects as well. Uh, so a big variety of stuff. I, I, I think there's not much of the product I didn't look at in some form or another over the course of those three years. So it's definitely a kind of a, a wide range of things that I was called upon to look at. You mentioned that you were working on Android for a bit. Is, is that kind of a specialty for you or do you have a sp- specific expertise? You know, I didn't at the time. I didn't beforehand. I was, I think like a lot of designers, you know, I'd kind of just skewed iOS and my previous forays into Android had always been underwhelming, I think. And I'm going back, you know, the sort of honeycomb era, you know, real immature Android, to be honest. And, you know, every now and then I'd used to check it out and go, yeah, okay, well, it's still not anywhere near there. So I didn't really invest that much time. Uh, when we landed this project, obviously that had to change. So I spent a lot of time trying to immerse myself in that. So I now consider myself... I don't really have a platform allegiance per se. You know, I've done some iOS. I've done a fair bit of Android now. I've done plenty of web, but I I also have opinions about uh, the future of the web as a software platform. Suffice to say, those opinions aren't wildly positive. So I'm, I'm skewing more mobile these days. Okay. Android's definitely interesting. iOS is, is, has always been interesting. 
And then, of course, there's also kind of the wearables angle as well as kind of extensions of iOS, extensions of, of Android through wear and so on. So there's definitely kind of interesting things I'm trying to poke around at there. But I wouldn't say I have any kind of particular platform allegiance now. I'm um, whatever platform is right to get the job done, I'm, I'm interested in. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about uh, software on the web. Uh, the web is a platform there. Mm. I kind of feel I have to preface it by saying that, you know, I love the web. I would love the web to be this universal platform that that rules them all, but I'm pretty sure that ain't going to happen now. I think the web has... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think the web as, as kind of hypertext platform, as, you know, container for content, is astonishingly powerful and has brought us so, so much. And long may that continue. You know, the web will always have some kind of role. Uh, And my view essentially is it should probably stick to what it's best at, which is that side of things. I think when you look at the web as a pure kind of software platform, essentially by which I mean, you know, the difference between, you know, essentially a site and an app for me is that an app has behavior as the primary thing you're designing. So you're designing, you know, that's your main raw material. Whereas a site, a content-driven site, has information as your raw material. Now, that's not to say that sites don't have behavioral aspects and apps don't have information, but the primary focus is behavior versus information. And I Yeah, it seems like distribution versus functionality kind of thing. Yeah. So it's more about getting the functionality to people or being the functionality. Yeah. And of course, you know... there is there is functionality behind displaying good content and making sure that people can find it and so on. Fair. That's that's a functional thing too, but it's not the main yeah. it's not the main driver, right? And I think when you look at these you know, essentially these software products, these apps, I just I find myself frustrated with having to do that on the web because the capabilities are just not there. I every time I've done it, I felt I was fighting the platform rather than it it boosting me, rather than unlocking its potential. I was always trying to squeeze it and, and mash it around and, and force it to do things it wasn't terribly equipped to do. What, what do you mean specifically there? Like, what are the big constraints for you? I mean, they're numerous. There are obviously things like device access, you know, access to cameras, the sensors and so on, all that sort of stuff, which is historically separated from the browser. And, you know, the, the browser vendors and so on, they are working hard to catch up. You know, they've, they've got these APIs and so on uh, with which they can access more device properties, but they're always trailing. They're always playing catch up there. And as new sensors are coming to these, you know, to handheld devices and wearables and so on, any progress that the browsers make in terms of those kind of sensorial access, I think is is just lagging behind and is 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 not catching up quick enough, unfortunately. So there's always going to be a kind of a an input constraint, I suppose, on the web that you're going to be relying more on direct user input through keyboard or perhaps microphone as well, perhaps a camera, but it's not quite as trivial, not quite as smooth, for sure. Uh, there's also performance um, problems that I've found quite tricky to deal with. If you're, for instance, you know, programming in, in iOS, you pretty much know what you're going to get in terms of device performance, assuming it's a relatively recent handset. Now, there is something nice about the universality of the web and saying, well, build it and it should work on any web-capable device. But the demands of software make that a bit harder. Um, you have to try and balance, if you like, that accessibility with the real potential and the power you get from delivering this this really exciting and new user experience. And it's kind of a, a you know an ongoing uh, juggling act between those two things. And I found it was difficult to get the kind of performance, the kind of smoothness that I was expecting through the web. I think that's always going to be a challenge. Yeah, makes sense. When people talk about Android being a fractured platform, it always amazes me that the web doesn't get that same treatment. It, it's even more fractured. It has more things it has to support. It, mm-hmm. it goes beyond that. I mean, there's different ways you can view it on the same device even. Right. Right. That's crazy. And you know that's that's a good thing. That's that's kind of one of the core principles of the web is that universality of access, and that's um, that that makes it very powerful in some ways. But we can't overlook that that also makes a lot of things very difficult as well. The problem with this kind of discussion, I think, sometimes is ideology tends to get in in the way. And you know, well, I, I really love the values of the web. You know, this idea of 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 open access, of connecting people, of sharing information, and so on. I don't want to let those values blind me to its deficiencies for um, trying to create really good software uh, experiences, which is essentially what I'm I, what I try to do. So 
I don't think that ship has sailed. I think, um, you know, I wrote a blog post and I said, the web isn't losing, but, uh, you know, I threw in like a sports analogy like that. The goalkeeper's just been sent off and there's a free kick outside the box. Like, it's not looking good. Um, and I don't, <laughs> I don't see, Poetic. I don't see how easy it's going to be uh, for the web to start to be really kind of competitive because, you know, the companies that are creating the most excitement, that are changing global culture, that are attracting interest, investment, um, you know, employees, candidates, they're not web companies anymore. They are native mobile companies. And that's where the the thrust of that kind of cutting edge uh, of the industry is these days. And for better or for worse, that's probably where I want to be, is on that, you know, trying to forge a uh, you know, an exciting new future to see what see what we can do with those tools. Uh, I work mostly on the web, so that's sort of a a scary omen. I think. <laughs> um, well, I mean, did you not sense this on your own? Uh, I've I've always thought that there's like a lot you can do on on a computer that you can't do on a phone. Uh, it's just different contexts and like different things you're trying to solve. Uh, but yeah, I mean, mobile is is still amazing. It's just moving so fast. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm probably a bit behind there. Okay, so your your future bet is on mobile. Uh, to what extent is that? Is that iOS and Android? Where do wearables fit into your vision as a designer? Yeah, I think in terms of kind of the platform wars on on mobile, I don't see much changing. I mean, this gets more into kind of the territory of you know analysts and people who know this stuff. And uh, these are just, these are just hunches for me from a from a analysts designer. know things. What? <laughs> well, okay, who who put on a they good make show it up. of knowing this stuff? Exactly. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. <laughs> who convince others they know? Um, and I'm sure. not I'm not too too uh, wild about predicting you know the future. I don't have as as much data at least that they that they do. But I, I can't see that landscape changing too much. I think iOS and Android pretty much seem to have, um, you know, the lion's share of the market, certainly for the next few several years. I would never discount uh, Microsoft from that. I think you, you discount Microsoft at your peril. Windows Phone might make some kind of um, headway. I saw they've actually just announced some kind of interesting stuff around. Yeah, um, they just announced a ton of stuff this morning. Yeah, yeah. I, they, I didn't see that. I've literally just seen like, like... headlines on Twitter, but um, it sounds, sounds interesting. I sh- yeah, I saw the headline. I probably should not. I saw comment. something about holograms. That's all I saw. Well, Jake there's Marsh that. tweeted about holograms. Wow. They also had like uh, an easier way to port iOS and Android apps. Oh yeah, to yeah, Windows. yeah. I did see that. Objective C compiled for iOS can run on Windows 10. That's insane, uh-huh. right? Hmm. So, I mean, honestly, that is really smart of them. They know where the apps are, so like, just make it easy to get those apps onto their platform as well. Right. Because I actually love Windows Phone as a platform. I think there's some really intelligent work gone into it. I actually know a couple of the folks. So Twitter hired a couple of the ex-Windows Phone platform designers who, you know, set up that, essentially designed the OS and designed some of the standards around it. And they're very smart people. They know what they're doing. Um, and I love it. But they obviously, Microsoft has an ecosystem problem. You know, they don't have the apps. And as such, you know, that doesn't attract uh, interest to the platform, which in turn means no apps and so on. It's a vicious circle for them. But if they can find a way around that problem, if they can find a way to repurpose apps from, you know, the the Windows ecosystem or from iOS and Android, then yeah, they could be back in it. So I think you know you never want to discount them. What are some interesting things that you see happening on Windows OS and Windows phones? Because I honestly haven't had a chance to even play around with that entire world. Mm. Um, they they got a head start on the flat thing, like making that a huge thing with Metro, Metro which became yeah. I don't know some weird term because Metro was taken. But yeah, that's right. They did some really interesting things, especially with the whole like motion in like motion using clipping, so that they could display information at a reasonable size, but not have it all on screen at once. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, exactly. And I think they they took some really bold decisions with with Metro. Um, Very bold. Perhaps too bold, to be honest. You know, there is this 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 thing that you can't move. You need to move ahead of your audience in terms of you always got to be designing the next thing. But if it's too far detached, you kind of lose them, <laughs> right? They need to have some of those recognizable cues from version to version, from iteration to iteration. But I love the boldness and the clarity of what Microsoft is trying to do on the design side to say, look, we have a challenge here. We are no longer seen as, I mean, I don't know if they ever were, but we're certainly not seen as a company that's wildly design literate. They feel behind the times and they felt very corporately driven. They didn't feel like they were as connected to the community as, say, Android or iOS or 
even macOS. Yeah, I think that's... Uh, I thought that was really interesting. I think that's certainly the case. Uh, and they obviously then empowered a design team, you know, at a very high level to say, right, go fix this. And also they they recognize that they've got so many different products, uh, both hardware and software products and platforms that are Microsoft owned and operated. And the scale to say, all right, we need a unifying design language for all of these it's, it's one thing to say that, but it's another to actually execute on it. And you can say, of course, you know, it's it's not a perfect implementation. There's some instance of, you know, an approach that works well on uh, Xbox, for instance, may work less well on uh, Windows 8 or, or whatever it is. But the the boldness of trying to do that and actually executing on it, um, I have a huge amount of respect uh, for a team that can get that shipped at a big company like like Microsoft. Definitely. Mm. That's super impressive. Yeah, absolutely. And even the way it's been overflowing into their uh, their iOS apps are pretty impressive. Uh, all the mobile office stuff. Have you used them? I uh, downloaded them and played with them, yeah. I don't use them. Oh, yeah, them. Mr. Design Details. <laughs> got it. Yeah, I've played with all their apps. And everyone uh, tells me, I haven't got round to this yet, but everyone tells me that uh, Outlook is the best iOS email client. Dude. Well, it's Accompli. They bought Accompli and they changed the name to of Outlook. Of course, right. I someone recommended that last night I was tweeting about like what to write a blog post on and someone said Outlook mm. and I downloaded it but I don't have it kind of sounds like Sunrise might be Outlook calendar in the near future which oh yeah Sunrise is my favorite calendar so if I ended up using right. like an actual Microsoft Outlook app I would be very impressed yeah I'm gonna have to play around with the Outlook email um and didn't actually like hook my email up to it but yeah yeah same I think there's there's always been that there's been that kind of that disbelief you have to get over. Everyone, you know, originally people were like, yeah, you know, Microsoft are actually doing good design. And you're like, yeah, I'll wait until I see it. Wait until it ships. And then I saw it. It's like, wow, all right, they they mean this. Their mobile stuff seems to be coming together a lot faster than their desktop, though. Because if you look at the Windows 10 icons, they're just abominations. Oh. <laughs> I think it's did, ridiculous. Didn't they say those were like a work in progress, though? <laughs> yeah, but they're going to say that until it ships, and then they're not. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah <laughs> shipping shipping com- uh you know shipping software in a big company is complex there are a ton of moving parts and sometimes you know sometimes you do ship stuff that's not quite what you expected or that it was a placeholder or that just makes it lie yeah these things happen but they you know i have i have sort of confidence there they're pulling it together i do agree that they seem to have it probably a bit tighter on mobile than on desktop I think on desktop, they've always had kind of this legacy software problem where they still yeah. need to support all these you know, systems that are propping up enormous uh, you know, transactions and companies that are running, I don't know, Windows 95 or, you know, or DOS. The or biggest even, indicator like, of that was that they changed the name from Windows 8 to 10 to avoid everyone that was saying target Windows uh, versions that start with 9. Yeah. I'd, for 98 and 95. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd heard that. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah, that's why they went to Windows 10. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> and whether that's true or not, I mean, it's always, again, one thing I find working at Twitter... It's a really is, great story. Is, it's, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, you never know. Like, everyone's um, interpretations about what's going on inside a big company, they're, they're usually wildly wrong and kind of laughably so. So, I don't know, that may be, that may be just one of those kind of yeah. cute stories, but... um. I still think the signification of calling it version 10 is is quite intelligent anyway. You know, it's a nice round number, it's a kind of fresh start, it's a kind of redoubling of efforts, you know, that all that all that all that good stuff. So they've they've had to sort of tack between trying to do this bold thing but also recognizing that they got people with older machines, people who don't have touchscreens for instance who still need to run this, you know, the Windows platform. And so you know, I talk about device diversity. I mean, heck, that's enormous device diversity right there. So it's never going to be easy to create a single, you know, well-implemented OS that's going to work for everyone. There's always going to be compromises. One There's thing to rule them things. all. There's always going to be things that don't quite work for various people. Uh, but that's probably one of the challenges of working somewhere like that. You know, you have that, that kind of scale. Do you feel like it, is Apple either doing a good job of avoiding that or do you feel like that they're moving in that direction? Um, I feel like in historically they've been pretty ruthless about dropping support for yeah old devices. It does seem that I mean certainly you know on the iPhone side it's it has become more complex to design for iOS because even just you know the rudimentary pixel dimensions all that kind of stuff um, there is more diversity there. I do want to talk just a little bit about 
some of the language and some of the, the biases that we bring to this kind of conversation. When you hear people talk about Android fragmentation, um, fragmentation is used as a negative in that context. You know, it's, well, oh, it, if only we had one, you know, or at least just a way to know what this Android device was capable of doing, or just a couple of templated ones and so on. But instead, it's just so fragmented, all these different devices from different OEMs, running different versions of Android with different capabilities, etc. That's a kind of a negative spin on it. The positive spin on that is choice. You know, the user has the choice of which device suits them. And really, who are we to say that that's a bad thing? You know, if the users have this kind of uh, range of devices in front of them, so long as they're all well-designed and intelligently marketed and so on, they should be in a position to to choose something that's right for them. So yeah. when, when we talk about iOS, again, I think people see it as, well, you know, iOS is going to start is, is already starting to fragment as well. That's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, if it means that more people enjoy iPhones, iPads, iOS generally, then I'm not really fussed if it makes a bit of extra inconvenience for us as designers and engineers. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that just makes our jobs harder, but this probably is, the world. That has a really interesting parallel to diversity in like the design community. I think that's like weird because everyone tends toward like one thing and they're like, well, if we were all this way, it would be really great, especially with users. Like if users all thought the exact same way we did, that would be wonderful. <laughs> that would be swell. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't I want don't that world. When, when you pointed that out, it's like fragmentation is just device diversity. Yeah, it's 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 just choice. It's just uh, you know, it's the market in action. If people want that kind of thing, that's our jobs to figure out how to respond. It's not really for us yeah, to it, say, it, it, you know, you can have any smart smartphone you want so long as it's black. That doesn't fly in 2015. Right. Yeah. It's it's just a challenge and like obstacle for designers now to probably even just think on on a higher systems level, like what is flexible and what not having to worry about the width of a screen, but just like, I don't know, like something that will work across widths, right? Responsive. Yeah. Ha. Huh. <laughs> exactly that. Yeah. I don't know. That was pretty obvious, but. Okay. So speaking of uh, new device sizes, wearables mm. have especially become focused on mm. net with the Apple Watch release. It sounds like you tried a few of them. Yeah, I've tried a few. I, um... I made a, a sort of deliberate decision to just poke around with wearables because I have I have a hunch there's something really interesting there, but I don't know what it is. And I also got a bit pissed off reading everyone speculating about what the Apple Watch will mean and what you know the future of wearables will how it will affect digital products, and none of them had actually tried the the damn devices. There was a, <laughs> there was a sorry, that was us too. <laughs> we did that. <laughs> But there was there was a talk I can't remember what what uh, event it was at, but um, you know it was it was probably I think it was probably just like some white dudes on a stage talking about what wearables will mean. None of them was wearing a that swat, sounds a like a conference watch. name. <laughs> None of them was wearing a smartwatch, and they were all you know opining about the future of these things. I thought, well, let's just try the devices. So I spent I spent a bit of time. I've been I had a Samsung Gear S for a couple of weeks. Um, I actually took that back. Not because I didn't like it, but really I wanted to focus more on Android Wear. And it, it actually doesn't, it's not an Android uh, it's device. Tizen, it's Tizen, right? Yeah. I could talk about Samsung's OSs at some point, maybe. Um, <laughs> I, I have experience of those. And then so I've, I switched to the Moto 360, uh, which I still have. And now I got, the, got my Apple Watch on Friday. Which sounds to be best in breed for Android, the uh, Moto 360, right? Um, no, there's got to be better. <laughs> really? <laughs> please, please be better. I've heard there's nothing better currently, but maybe I'm wrong. There's, um... Oh, the name escapes me now. The LG G-Watch is that's, terrible. That's the one I was thinking of. The Moto 360 is... You think that's is, better? The Moto 360 is one of the worst devices I've used. I, I think it's, wow. it's god-awful. It's it's pure skeuomorphism, and I mean that in the in the... You know, the correct sense of the term. It's not just that it uses a physical metaphor. It uses physical metaphor that has absolutely no function. It's circular for the sake of being circular, for the sake of hearkening back to a form factor that's no longer required for the you know the sweeping analog hands. That's fair. Android Wear was not designed to be circular. Um, I have this on good authority from uh, one of the originators of Android Wear. And you know the screen's bad. The battery life is poor. I just think it's a it's a terribly weak device a terribly immature device let's put it that way but i see something interesting in the behaviors that it enabled and 
the interesting kind of divergent directions that it can be taken, that I'm absolutely confident that even if this first wave of devices is pretty, you know, pretty nascent, there's going to be some really interesting stuff happening over the next five years. It may not ever get to the state where these are first-class devices that, you know, sell in their millions and billions. It, it may always be slightly a bit of a fringe pursuit. Who knows? But I do think there's some real potential for them to be a platform for really interesting kind of innovation um, in the app space particularly. So I just wanted to get a taster of what's working, what isn't, what the different flavors of operating system felt like, where they differed. And it's been really instructive. I'm, I'm glad I've done it. And I would recommend to anyone who hasn't spent some time playing around with these things, do. I would be prepared for them to be rough around the edges, uh, for sure. So, But it's fun. It sounds like you have the most diverse experience with wearables so far of anyone that I've talked to. Right. How are you feeling about the uh, the space right now? You tried the Apple Watch. I, I heard some of your opinions on Twitter. Mm. So I think the Apple Watch is... It's like a 6 out of 10, I think. It's it's pretty good. It's light years ahead of the 360, which you know would be maybe a 2 or a 3 out of 10. I can see a lot of interesting potential in the Apple Watch. My hunch at this stage is maybe we've been focusing on the wrong angle. We've been focused on the notification layer. And everyone was hypothesizing that uh, you know the, the notification battle is that's essentially the battleground of the next you know, however long. And I've I've said that myself. And yeah, sure, you know, there's going to be that sort of top slicing of notifications and pushing that to your wrist where it's more personal, contextual, potentially less intrusive in that you don't have to take the damn phone out of your pocket, etc. But the interesting layer for me right now is the glance on the Apple Watch. There's something about... The glance that. is my favorite thing. Yeah. And we haven't explored that kind of angle quite so much in digital products in the last 10 years. You know, you've had you've had some sort of, you know, glanceables that you might put in a, in a public display. I designed one once for a call center, you know, like a calls waiting sort of thing. And that was, you know, essentially a glanceable. You look up and you see there are 12 calls waiting and hey, get back to work, you know. But it changes the relationship between product and user in, in, in interesting ways that I... I Again, I have hunches that there's some exciting stuff to come with glances, and I think that's going to warrant a lot more design exploration. And I also think the potential for digital products essentially to have their front window, the keyhole, to be on the wrist. You know, the, the if you like, the doormat to the experience. You know, it starts here, and then there's some kind of handoff. There's some point at which it says, all right, you need to move devices um, to do this or whatever it is. But that idea of maybe, maybe you know, the watch becomes like the homepage of your app. You know, that kind of equivalent there. And then as you dive deeper into some of the flows, you say, well, actually, we, this is not well-suited. It's, it's above context. the fold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> but there's, there's something interesting in what it enables there that I think we haven't explored um, well. So I'm, I'm really excited to see where that takes us. Are you designing any apps right now for wearables? I'm not. I'm open to invitations <laughs> to do so. Um, but uh, because, uh, you know, because it's only recently that I've sure. freed myself up, I'm still very much in kind of recovery mode at the moment. So I think I took a very different um, valuation of the watch compared to how you did. I think it's like a 12 out of 10. Oh. I love this thing. Mm. I don't want it off my wrist ever. It's better than perfect. It bothers me so much when I'm like not wearing it. Oh, God. Uh, I've, I've they've heard, got him. I've they've heard got you him. can wear it in the shower <laughs> and I'm seriously debating it because I don't want to lose it, but I don't want to take it off. Right. Why? And it's really a matter of always having really quick information. I think the glance is a big part of that. So it's like just when you need information that is always immediately available with just a flick of the finger. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's long-lived notifications. It, it feels like it has a little more permanence than a notification because I, I like to like dismiss notifications constantly. Like I like to just get rid of them. Yep. It's like inbox zero kind of thing. Um, but glances I am in love with because there's no management required. Right. It's exactly. just it's just there and it's what you need it and it constantly refreshes. And then if you need to go to the app, it pulls it up and hand off on your iPhone and you're there. Right. Like it's it's a shortcut too. It's so useful to me. Yes. Um I'm a big fan. Which I use them for like little piddly things, but God, it's just so enjoyable. <laughs> so you're saying once once you can do it for not little marginal tasks it's just yeah. gonna get better and better absolutely it, i think it'll be really really interesting it's glances right now for those who don't know is it's when you pull down from the top of your watch it, it shows you the notifications if you pull up from the bottom of the watch face you can flick left and right kind of like you do in multitasking 
in on iOS. And it's just like having an app screen there that is just static information, basically. It'll update after a little bit, um, but generally it just kind of like keeps tabs on things. I don't know how often it calls, but I guess every, once every couple minutes or something like that. It's really handy. I'm, I'm a big, big fan. I, I love this thing. And the remote app for uh, Apple TV, <laughs> huge fan of that too, because you just lift your wrist up and pause or skip ahead whatever mm-hmm. oh so good i have um i did today use it i used passbook on it to board a plane the first time mostly just to see if i could to see does this actually i've been really interested in that work? specifically yeah so i so i was flying in from dublin this morning uh back to london and i thought what the hell why not and so i, I tried it and it worked fine the only problem is on british airways the scanners they have aren't physically big enough to get a wrist into so <laughs> it, <laughs> unfortunately they just they were you the one talking about that today on twitter no, I actually didn't talk about it today. No. Someone posted that this is what happens when people don't actually have the device to test for. Right. <laughs> and and it was like Cantus, Qantas, whatever it is, yeah, the Qantas, yeah. Australian one, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you keep saying like you're seeing interesting behaviors and you have lots of hunches. Mm. Are you up for sharing? Like, where do you see the puck going here? Is it is it a watch? Like, is that the wearable that you're envisioning of the future or something else or different behaviors that you see people might might change it's very early to extrapolate i think the watch was always kind of the the most obvious place to start because you know we have a history of that we understand some of the social gestures around looking at your watch and so on those are now changing of course which is an interesting problem in and of itself all these people sort of just checking their checking their phones now look like they're bored of the conversation and want to leave i admire what google were trying to do with glass um it clearly has not been a, a, you know, an accepted product. It's clearly a bit of a failed product. But again, taking that kind of bold step and saying, hey, maybe this is one potential future is interesting. And of course, there's not much more personal you can get than a, a display that only you have access to. Uh, you know, that really doesn't have any of that public context of, you know, shared visibility like a watch does. So they obviously, they obviously fell down on particularly... Um, perceptions of privacy, which clearly are really important. And there are all sorts of ethical challenges around wearables, which we haven't got a clue how to answer at this stage. But I I could see that being an interesting field of inquiry, you know, vision, glasses, even, you know, contact lenses, all these sorts of things are are talked about. That might be interesting because you can't get any more personal than that. (laughs) You know, so kind of if everything trends smaller and more uh, more intimate to the user than you know a contact lens or something like that is obviously kind of one extreme of it like a dragon ball z heads-up display well so i mean there's also a link wow in speaking of dragon ball z <laughs> announcements <laughs> i don't know if you heard it they just announced that they're going to start the uh dragon ball z the dragon ball chu series uh, I don't know. that was a weird off-topic <laughs> thing but i liked it <laughs> It's it's a poor man's Pokemon. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. A, I'm not a Dragon Ball guy. I'll talk about Pokemon until the cows come home. All right, Pokemon <laughs> snob, got it. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that should be the next Pokemon <laughs> elitist, elite forest for elitist. I don't know. I just can't wait for Pokemon Snap on augmented reality. Oh. <laughs> that would be pretty uh, amazing, dude. Walking around the city, seeing little Pokemon <laughs> poking out of the corners. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> Forget you're wearing it, and suddenly like Charizard. <laughs> you're throwing stuff. All of a sudden. Charizard. <laughs> Sorry, we keep going. <laughs> <That off>. got <laughs> weird. Because <laughs> like, yeah, all right, guys. <laughs> no, I think there is something interesting though about how this plays in with VR as well. And again, I I'm no I'm no expert on VR. I don't have an Oculus dev kit sitting around. But there's got to be some interesting interplay here between wearables and VR. And as that technology gets more interesting, more portable, more consumer accessible, and stuff starts to get built, I think there's the potential for you know that landscape to be kind of wild and unrecognizable in 10 years from where we are today. You know, I think there was a temptation to say, well, all right, smartphones is where it's at. And, if, you know, that's a that's a done deal. Like everyone eventually will have a smartphone um, and that will always be an important platform for digital product. But that's not going to be the end of it. That's not going to be the, the single platform that everyone should be designing for. There are going to be all sorts of weird and wonderful things ahead, I'm sure. And I'm just excited to see what those are and hopefully to be a part of that. Definitely. So you have this thing that you've been talking about on Twitter at, at least yesterday, maybe the day before, about toxic MVPs. And I think that's a really interesting use case because that's such a prevalent uh, methodology here is starting with an MVP and then moving on from there. So actually, I, I don't, I'm, I'm missing the context here. Can you fill me in on what that is or what you mean by toxic MVP? Mm. 
Sure. So this idea of of you know the MVP a minimum viable product, uh, see your your audience, I'm sure knows. Yeah, is yeah. you know it's very much in the ascendancy. I actually think it's we're slightly getting to a post MVP world now because I'm I'm seeing it weaponized um, and used for bad essentially. Interesting. What I'm seeing is that MVP is essentially becoming a euphemism for V1, and with V1 there always is a V2 which never happens. As in, you know, we've all been in those discussions where you're all talking about a feature and you go, oh, that sounds really interesting, but we'll leave that for V2. And we all know from that minute, it's an unspoken thing, but there's, a, <laughs> there's an acknowledgement. Yes. That will never yes. get built. I'm seeing far too frequently MVP used essentially as, we will build this and we won't build anything else and then we will move on. Now, the intention behind the MVP is, of course, not that. It's to test an idea. It's to see whether you've got product market fit, whether you need to iterate what's working, what isn't. The reality is that's not how it's being used. It is being used as an excuse to ship crap products and saying, oh, it's fine. It's only an MVP. The thing ships. And without the iteration, without the willingness to revisit that and to learn from it and to iterate, essentially, it's it's a vehicle for uh, incrementalism and... Just, just really impoverished products. And so, you know, designers are talking about this and saying, well, it shouldn't just be a minimum viable product, it should be a minimum minimum lovable product. And I've seen dozens of blog posts talking about that. And we've all seen the the graphic of, um, uh, you know, the cartoon of you know, building a car and you start off, it's a skateboard, then you put a handlebar on it and it's a scooter and then it's a motorbike. Yes. And it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's kind of cute. But um, I was talking with a friend of mine who's another a designer I uh, went for a beer with him this afternoon, and he raises a good point that, a, you know, a skateboard is not a minimum viable version of a car. It's a completely different thing. It's not an acceptable, exactly. it's right. not an acceptable substitute. If you are in the market for a car and someone says, here's a skateboard, but don't worry, it'll get, we'll get you to a car eventually. We'll, you know, we'll trade up <laughs> for a, for a scooter, then we'll trade up for a moped. <laughs> That's not acceptable. You need a damn car. You're buying a car. So even that, that graphic... Hmm, is like the uh, inspirational quote of like <laughs> explainers. It sounds really nice. It's really pleasant to to see or hear, but it's not really valuable. It's just kind of there. Yeah, it's a visual slogan. You know, it. it the more you analyze it, the less useful it gets. You know, and so I, I'm kind of in a phase now of questioning essentially what is it about the MVP that's not working. Uh, and people will defend it and say, well, you know, it's the instantiation of MVP. The idea is sound, but people just aren't executing on it properly. They're not doing the right thing of iterating and so on, which is great to an extent. But sometimes if if your concept can never actually is never actually executed upon, upon properly, maybe the problem isn't the poor execution. Maybe it's the concept. Um, you know, communism, I think, would be a good example. I think, you know, you look at communism and theoretically, yeah, it sounds great. You know, <laughs> everyone gets to share in the wealth and all this sort of stuff. But the realities of it leave something to be desired. And I eventually you start to say, well, maybe communism doesn't really work. And so I just start wondering, you know, maybe the MVP is not that helpful of framing. If it's so frequently done badly, maybe it itself is not, a, a you know, something helping us forward. I also think it prioritizes a certain kind of logical positivism among, among business owners to basically say the only things that matter are the things that can be validated and verified and measured and iterated, which I reject that. You know, designers, we deal with intangibles. We deal with loyalty and love and excitement and these sort of things that you can't, you can't weigh love, right? You don't think you can measure it from, from like a, I mean, not to borrow a term from Tim Cook, but like customer sat <laughs> or, or like the way it's talked about, things like that. I think there's a measurable there. There has to be. You can, so there, essentially you can either try and frame an intangible as a tangible, or you can try and refocus a business to see the, the implicit value of intangibles and okay. kind of have that on faith. The first way is easier. So yeah, you know, there is some correlation between particularly net promoter and, you know, the bottom line, and there's a correlation between net promoter and, and general sort of usability. So I find, you know, NPS kind of a decent attempt to do that, but it's still, it's, it's essentially falling into the trap of thinking designers have to speak the language of the MBA in order to get our the credibility that they deserve. For me, I'm more interested in trying to reorientate the business's perspective to to recognize the value of these things and be comfortable in just trusting that they have value. That, yeah, sure, if they want to try and measure, they can, but also just to recognize that it's not going to be terribly easy to measure. But sometimes it's just the right thing. Build something that people love. 
even if you can't put a, a, a number on it. Didn't you do a talk about this, something about ethical design? Yeah, so I have um, a talk that I've been giving uh, a fair bit of late, and I'm actually doing some writing around it. Uh, and actually, one of my options for kind of the next 18 months for me is to dive into that uh, more deeply, um, which we'll, we'll see. There is a danger, I think, in trying to over-quantify. And it's not that designers should be scared of quantification. They shouldn't be scared of numbers. Numbers are wonderfully powerful advisors, but they are tyrannical masters. And if they start to run everything, you end up in a terrible place. I have this saying that essentially, like, you know, when the world dies, it will be because of numbers. Numbers cause the growth. You know, there's always GDP has to go up, population has to go up. There has to be some intelligence analysis of it. Is that actually where we want to go? Because that has to stop somewhere. I think there is a quant- a, a correlation between over-quantification of business success and priorities by numbers and degradation of the environment, of... Um, you know, the kind of materials pool of of, um, all sorts of highly valuable things that essentially the march to increase a number is starting to ride roughshod over. So I think we need to be careful in how we try and quantify the effects of our work. I'll leave it at that, maybe. Growth for the sake of growth. Uh, How do you even communicate that to to people, uh, society at large, where like that's kind of the implicit goal for everything, right? Yeah. If if there's a number behind it, the goal is to make that number better. Right. Your, well, your weight, your speed. Um, then also everything. the people who manage the numbers have to make sure that the numbers fit within something that they can actually quantify too, which mm-hmm. gets tricky. That's where like, you end up with angry masses because people are trying to manage the numbers. And it's sure. shitty. You're right. I mean, that is an enormously difficult problem. Very tough thing to try and communicate that change in mindset but i do think designers are equipped to do it i think we deal terrifically well with that intangible side of things we understand that that benefit and it's almost become a kind of a moral obligation to try i think because the future of a world driven by numbers and growth acceleration for the sake of acceleration is not a good future for the world it doesn't end well most acceleration usually ends with rapid deceleration and that's what'll kill you (laughs) yeah I mean, potentially literally <laughs> in, this, uh, in this situation. We're talking here about companies that have already started, right? You're not necessarily talking about like the speeding up of building new things necessarily, I'm actually, like new products. I'm actually talking more broadly than that. I'm talking the, the kind of the biases and alignments of things like capitalism and you know, the way we want to create value in the world are significantly predicated on the idea of increasing numbers. You know, we must increase GDP. We must beat Wall Street's expectations every single quarter. Unless you're Twitter. <laughs> Ooh, I, cold, man. I couldn't possibly comment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, you know, these, these kind of broader things, it's not just about, sure, we want user numbers to go up or we want, you know, the... the the bottom line to go up you know growth as a global concept is very powerful until the point at which it's unsustainable and then you haven't planned for that eventuality and you find yourself in some real trouble so you know growth of gdp also comes is also going to be correlated with growth growth of pollution and you know climate change and all these sorts of terrifying global concepts so we need to recognize that role this has all got very deep all of a sudden (laughs) yeah this is deep i don't even (laughs) i feel so in brian land we're in my land and I feel very uncomfortable and unqualified to make any sort of comment. So the other thing that I thought was very interesting is you wrote it a while back was something about how junior designers spend 80% of their time creating and 20% refining Mm. and senior designers spend 20% creating and 80% refining. I'm not sure who said it. Someone quoted you a while back. It was shortly before I contacted you to Mm -hmm. set this up about like 60% thinking and then 20% creating and then 20% refining. Like it was processing the problem first mm-hmm. to reduce the amount of time spent on the other yeah. things. But I, I believe at the end of that article that you're referencing that I wrote, um, my conclusion was the experts realized that creating and refining are the same thing. That could be it. It's been quite a while yeah. since I've read it. <laughs> and I think that separation, it does go away with time because when you're creating something... Even as you're doing it, you're identifying opportunities for improvement. Yeah. This idea, for instance, that Photoshop and it's like, you know, the high fidelity tools, that they are there for production. They are there for the final assets and the pixel perfection. Here you go. Here is your signed and sealed red lines delivered design. That's certainly not how I use them. I use them as divergent tools for for just trying things out. You know, and when I'm making something, I'll tend to jump into a high fidelity tool very early because I can iterate 
really quickly. And I just immediately visually see, I, I try something, oh, it doesn't work, revert, undo, move it to the left, move it to the right, try it this configuration, that configuration, and so on. And I don't think we recognize that iteration is inherent in that act of creation. You're al- always making these micro decisions about what's better, what's worse, as you're making the thing. And so it's that idea of separating creation and then saying, okay, all right, it's done. Oh, I need to make a few tweaks. I don't, it just doesn't reflect the reality of how I work as a, as a designer. Those two things are, are so tightly woven that I can't, I can't, you know, unthread them. That's interesting. I've, I've heard a lot of opinions on whether or not you should start in, well, anything from a notebook to a high fidelity tool like Photoshop to the browser to whatever. Uh, I, I know I certainly do most of the processing in uh, a notebook, but that's mainly because I know that whatever it is, we'll have to go through several more steps before it gets to the final product, which kind of gives me more time to think about it built yeah. in. And I, I you know, yeah, I'm the I, same I way. certainly think that designers should be, you know, sketching or not, maybe not should be. I mean, it's their, it's their own choice, but I find value in, in sketching things, but I move out of that phase pretty quickly. I like to get into a more fluid canvas and despite its reputation, Photoshop and sketch and so on, they are fluid canvases in that, it all happens in the same space and you can move things around easily. Whereas a sketch, okay, that didn't work. Cross it out, do a new one. That actually feels like the iteration is is a bit lumpier. You know, you have to do a new sketch, mm-hmm. which, you know, it might only take you three minutes per sketch or whatever it is, you know, possibly less. But when I'm designing in a high fidelity tool, I can literally drag the thing, move it, you know, move this element to the left. Oh, that doesn't work visually. It's It, it doesn't suit the flow of the page or it's imbalanced. Move it straight back. I don't actually need to say, all right, that experiment was a failure, cross it out and start again. You know, that's what I mean by that iteration time being so tightly woven into the creation process. It's a, it's a matter of seconds sometimes. So I, I'm actually not familiar with the article. What are some other things that you see the differences between a junior and a senior designer? Um, picking your battles is, uh, I see that a lot more among the senior folks. Like standing on principles? Yeah, well, that's common across both. But where the junior and the senior okay. will differ is the junior will make a big kind of principle play out of something that actually doesn't matter. And it's intensely frustrating and it's intensely draining for that designer. Now, when I say that designer, I'm mostly talking about the young me because I went through all this. Mm-hmm. But I, I've spoken with other people and they... That's the beauty of this industry. We can talk about old us a <laughs> lot. Right. Um, but, you know, I've spoken with other people and they've recognized it as a, as a pattern among themselves as well. And they stand up and they yeah. dig their heels in over something. But then the problem is they do it about everything. That doesn't lead to a happy place for design because it eventually ends up with a situation where design is just regarded as, you know, the boy who cried wolf. It's, oh, they're always just an obstacle to something rather than a facilitator, rather than helping to get stuff shipped. They're always the person saying, we can't, it's shit, it's not good enough, we've got to redo it, and so on. The senior folk, they still have that internal drive, that kind of burning fire to ship great things, but they also recognise you can't just keep saying no to stuff. Sometimes it's better to say, okay, that's fine, that is good enough, I'm okay with that, but this is a problem for me. And so what you do is you you essentially give yourself headroom to operate and to say, this is something that, you know, I built up that bank of trust by you know, helping to get some of these smaller decisions through. But this one, I'm going to say, now we need to take a fresh look at that. And so I think I see that reflected in, you know, you see it in the day-to-day work, but you also see it in kind of the the attitude that designers have. Design for a junior, design is like an ache. You see everything broken in the world and you, you, you feel you have no alternative but to fix it. Like, this is my calling. I have to do this because it's a kind of a moral imperative. And again, a senior still has that. But they'll stop bitching about bathroom taps. <laughs> because, I mean, you know, because it's been done, yeah. and we know their shit. But there are bigger problems, sure, you know, to address than that. And great if someone wants to go into the bathroom tap industry and start to standardise and do the whole kind of Don Norman thing, then that's wonderful. But you just kind of shrug your shoulders and say, "I've got bigger." fish to fry than some of those things and that helps you retain sanity and it also helps you be a ton more effective in a large complex or even a small complex any kind of team is complex within a a, a complex team i can't think of anything more important than the bathroom tap industry so (laughs) see you later (laughs) yeah i'm gonna go actually my my sink is the worst (laughs) well i must confess you know i i bought a house uh in london um a few months back and I love it, but it does have one thing that I, I'll confess does piss me off, which is the light switches are all in the wrong places. 
they're all behind the hinge of the door. <laughs> so the door opens and the light switch is right behind the door you've just opened, right in the corner. And it's it's infuriating. Oh. And I want to rewire the whole place. And I don't know, that would cost me probably like a thousand pounds just for my design satisfaction and a minor bit of usability <laughs> improvement. And it's not worth it. <laughs> Junior me may have spent the thousand pounds, but then Junior me wouldn't have had a thousand pounds. So... I don't know. Wouldn't swapping the door hinges be the easier Well, that solution? might work, but then the door opens I mean, into the room and it just it kind of gets in the way more. And Not even on the same side. You just flip it to the other side of the door. Problem solved. <laughs> this this yes. is a very <laughs> particular thing that I have no concept of what your house looks like at all. Yeah, I'm like looking in your background like, uh, I can't see the lights. I see M-Audio, so oh. you're clearly working on something yeah. musical or sound-based. Yeah, sounds. I... I I have a hunch again. I'm exploring a lot of hunches at the moment. I'm definitely dabbling with things that are, that strike me as potentially interesting. And I, I have a hunch that sound design is interesting and relevant and has been really underserved in the digital product design community. I think we all know why it's kind of going back to the old days of the web and auto-playing MIDI and the horrors of, you know, a website that plays audio when you're in a, a busy office and it's like, oh God, which tab is it? And all that kind of... I was working at a print company in Minnesota that uh, they print... Uh, wedding invitations and I was designing a website or part of a website for David's Bridal their invitation site and they have a color picker on the main page because they have all these custom colors that are David's Bridal specific and they wanted them to each play a different musical note when you hovered over them (laughs) beautiful right yeah good luck we got away from that yes (laughs) so you know I think we've come at it exactly the same way that we have with motion that you know, the, the sort of Jacob Nielsen sort of style of saying, just don't have unnecessary animation, don't have unnecessary sound. And that is correct. You shouldn't have unnecessary motion or sound. But we're now finding motion is a really interesting tool to help, you know, kind of A, bring some delight. And that's kind of where most people are doing it, like to try and, you know, have these little flourishes. But also, I'm interested in both motion and sound as, an, as a different modality, by which I mean, you know, to sort of get away from the slightly wanky design terminology. You know, essentially, you could have less stuff on the screen if you move some of that to motion. If it, if the motion communicates or if the sound communicates, you don't need all these reams of UI copy to say, here's how something works or a notification mm-hmm. something's just happened. You could push that into the sound mode and you have the sound alert. And as the devices were using you know as i was talking about earlier they're becoming much more intimate much more personal that combination of sound and obviously that you know the, the tactic stuff in the in the watch as well oh i adore it really interesting so yeah, good because you don't have to have all that that visual clutter you can shift that into that different realm and there's something interesting around that i don't know exactly what it is but i want to i want to play around and i also want to help the product design community understand what sound can do from them i want to push it beyond you know the things that everyone always knows which is that er means an error you know and blip is like a positive or a success or something like that but i want to see i have some musical background i you know played in bands and i studied music a little bit and i have some product design background and there must be something in in you know bringing those together music theory psychoacoustics how we interpret sound what it what it signifies to us how can we use that? So I just have this wild hunch that if maybe, you know, if 2014 and 15 are the years of motion design, maybe 2016, 17 is the, you know, the years of sound design. And I just want to anticipate it maybe and play around and see if, see if I can help make that case, I suppose. I think the two definitely go hand in hand, especially at places like Facebook that has an integrated sound team and like the, uh, their like button on mobile is a great example of that yeah. where it, it expands and then it pops mm-hmm. And like, like what? Yep, you heard me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, we, I think the Facebook sound design team has come up every week in conversation for me because, mm. or for us, like they have their own in-house design team crafting sounds for every interaction, especially in Messenger. Mm-hmm. Like all these, even even just um, changing views and and like if you tap on the the bottom tab bar to like refresh or something, mm-hmm. you know, and there's no more content, it'll give you sort of this hollow sounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, ping not really ping and i think the taptic is a direct extension of that yeah where the biggest feature i hadn't heard about was the taptic stuff because you can't really explain it but if if you scroll really hard against the end of something you get that rubber banding effect you know well but then suddenly it feels like a rubber band kind of like pulling across your wrist and it's insane like i i was so excited when i first felt that i was like what just happened i didn't expect it in the least but it's so good the the interactions oh i'm in love and that's that's what excites me. I'm sorry, Sarah. Is, is, you know, they <laughs> is that they reinforce each other. You know, and you can use those together in all sorts of interesting ways, um, which we're not really exploring. And I think there's also potential for 
if you like sort of signature interactions or signature sounds, I mean, signature sounds we know well from advertising. You know, we all know the Intel yeah. chime and so on. And I, I think it would be a pain if every if every damn app tries to have its own signature sound. But some big companies, yeah, sure, why not? You know, why not have it as kind of a piece of brand sort of exposure there? The posting sound on the Facebook iOS app is an F major chord. I don't know if you've had, you know, discussed this story previously, but it's an F major chord. And what, I've, what I'm told is that they tried originally um, an F major 7 chord, which is made up of the, the notes F, A, C, E in that order. So obviously it was kind of just an internal gag that, oh, it spells, it spells face. <laughs> That's too so bad you, there's no notes O right, and K. No, quite. <laughs> but the problem with that is a major 7 chord sounds unresolved. It, it, there's a right. tension yep. there. It doesn't feel right. So they obviously tried it. I, I, again, I'm guessing, but it's, it sounds highly likely that they tried it recognize it's not quite there but still it's something we own it has fac in it so that's you know that's a good start and you know set, went with the f major chord and said yeah all right that represents us that's a good facebooky type thing and i expect they want to try and own that as a sound you know what you said is interesting about if everyone starts to do this like i noticed with uh certainly animation design um motion design <laughs> now pretty much every new app has has some elements of that and is starting to add flourishes here for the sake of adding flourishes and sound starts to enter that like i don't know if that gets distracting or if that's better for everyone how do you see that yeah it could be it could be bad and it could help set the course of sound back fairly quickly you know this brave new world and then suddenly everyone finds they have the tools and the permission to try this stuff they could get it horribly wrong and then everyone says oh i told you sound wasn't worth exploring they have the ability to make tools but they're making jewelry instead right right and i think we're, we're seeing the same with motion it's almost like you know for kind of the the old school people in the audience it's like the k's power tools era of motion like you've got all these exciting new whizzy plugins so you feel you should use them and so right now we're in this era of mandatory underdamped springs in all new apps you know things flying across the screen and bouncing and just <laughs> too much you know it yeah. doesn't communicate it's it's really done because they because you can or because there's a there's a trend you're trying to sort of associate something. 50 friction or more people <laughs> <laughs> psa yeah team underdamped springs hashtag <laughs> That's a long yeah, hashtag. Not, That's not our title. <laughs> and you know, I, we're going to see the same emotion as well. It's people are going to go over the top with it first, uh, with sound and motion, and then start to see. Okay, well, here's where it's actually adding to the experience. Here's where it's valuable. And like I say, particularly what I'm interested in is not just where it sits on top of the experience, but where it is part of the experience. Where by moving something to sound, you don't have to do it through a different means. So then you're getting into more of the kind of the idea of sort of ambient sound. I always had the idea of I'd love to have tried with something like TweetDeck, which is on someone's screen, like a journalist will have it probably up eight hours a day, and they're not going to be watching it. But if you can play certain alerts, or just like velocity spikes, or just little, almost like audible glances, essentially saying, this column is just kind of chugging away, and then suddenly something's happening in it, and you have this recognisable alert sound, or some kind of, you know, Geiger counter click kind of increase that alerts you that you've got something going on there and that doesn't you don't need to rely on things like you know push notifications or whatever for that kind of deal uh, it just becomes this more kind of subtle ambient uh, alerting mechanism i think there's some really interesting ideas around that that i'd love us to all start exploring more it's very interesting take yeah as as <laughs> unless your phone's on mute mm -hmm. then you still have that's to, the biggest problem yeah you still have to get away from it's that. mute fragmentation <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry because hashtag unmute we'll, we'll all have the contact lenses we'll all have the uh you know inner ear implants and so on ah as long as all these sounds translate to taptic i'm happy <laughs> right oh yeah like the movie her did you watch yep. that one yeah great film yeah <laughs> that's it <laughs> that's all, right. all i have to say about that <laughs> earpieces are the future uh but yeah we're running up against time um anything you'd like to plug or anything anything oh, you're interested in um Gosh, no, I think we've covered pretty much everything I'm interested in, to be honest. No, nothing really to plug, just to say it's, it's an exciting time, and I hope everyone else in the design community is excited about the next five to ten years of the field as I am, because there's so much ahead of us that we all need to be just playing and exploring, and I hope everyone can uh, create great things from it. Ah, I love it. Sweet. That's a good positive Beautiful ending. Beautiful optimism. I love it. <laughs> it balances some of the... Uh, 
some of the more apocalyptic stuff in the middle, so that's nice. <laughs> yes, it's, it's refreshing. It gently, apop- gently apocalyptic. Gently <laughs> apocalyptic. Very, very British yeah, apocalypse, yeah. that one, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> cool. Title. Um, yeah, that's actually going to be the title, just so you know. <laughs> cool. Okay, great stuff. That was episode 22. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes. If you're on an Android phone or device, iTunes <laughs> is also available on your computer. Um, if you love the show, it's super important to us. Uh, it can push us up the ratings so that people will see us. We're still trying to beat that jerk Leo Laporte who's got like the top three spots on lock. Yeah, and if you have anything, uh, any critical feedback, instead of leaving us a bad review, <laughs> you can tweet at us. Uh, that's been working well. We're talking to people with some. some I mean, ideas if you really and- think we deserve a bad review, you should leave us a bad review. But you should give us feedback on it because if you just rate us one star, that's it's impossible for us to fix the problem that you have. It's hurtful. <laughs> it it hurts my feelings. Brian is tender. <laughs> I'm a tender little boy. Ten- tender Brian. <laughs> no, thank you everyone for leaving us reviews. Also, hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM course thank you once again so much to icon finder for making this episode possible icon finder as you know is the best place to find icons for any design project you might be working on they have icons in every size shape format it's going to work with any software you might use Uh, if you're a photoshop user check sketch it's going to work great if you're just designing for the web they have svgs Really just a huge selection of any icon you could ever need in all sorts of variations. So check them out, iconfinder.com. And if you sign up for their pro service, you can use the promo code ROBOT to get 50% off your first month. Thank you so much to iconfinder.com for sponsoring this episode. Our second sponsor is once again, Code School. Code School is the best place to learn new technologies from the comfort of your browser. They're just releasing their Unmasking HTML emails course. They're making a really difficult, tedious task easier. They're helping explain every little bit of it. That's super important. And they're doing it through entertaining content instead of just like dry, like textbook reading. So it's really awesome they're doing that. We're really glad that they're on board with us. And you can go check them out at codeschool.com or check out their video by going to the show notes. Those are at designdetails.fm slash 22. And you can can watch that awesome luchador themed video. Thanks for listening to episode 22. 